0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Told Me to Learn and Develop for Medical Educators podcast series from the Frank H. Netter, MD, School of Medicine. This podcast is for busy medical school faculty who want to expand their knowledge in teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Coplett, and I will bring you interviews with experts in medical education, fellow faculty, and medical students to discuss the issues most relevant to today's medical educators. Today, I have a very honored guest, one of our graduates from Netter. Dr. Zachary Steinman, currently a third-year resident in pediatrics at Connecticut Children's and the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, graduated from Netter in 2019. Before matriculating at Netter, he received his BA from Wesleyan University, where he majored in ecology and studied plants. And he was also a musician. After college, he taught special education in fourth and fifth grade. Now he is months away from becoming a practicing pediatrician. We are going to be talking about how residency has changed his perspective on medical school, what he wished he had learned, what he'd learned and didn't appreciate at the time, and how he wants to use that perspective to shape his own teaching. Welcome, Zach.
1: Hi, thank you.
0: So, Zach, let's go back to the first week of internship. Tell me about that first week. Do you remember it and how you felt in terms of how prepared or unprepared you felt?
1: Yeah, I do remember it. Um, It was very, it was like a whirlwind, a little bit scary and also very exciting. I think to a certain extent, you can't completely prepare for (laughs) what it means to actually suddenly be the doctor that's seeing the patient. Um, And so I remember in the first week I started on inpatient wards on the general medicine and also gastroenterology services. And one of the first questions that I was asked was uh, what is diarrhea? And I was, you know, I paused for a minute and I said, diarrhea is when you poop a lot. Um, But it turns out there's actually a definition of what diarrhea means and it's quantifiable and calculatable and it influences our management of the patients and some of these sort of smaller things that you think you kind of understand implicitly but you don't necessarily Um, I think I'll never forget being asked that question (laughs) Um, and then also really kind of like perseverating and thinking over things that now are very simple like the Tylenol order Um, so I'll remember. Forever doing um, getting the 3 a.m. text because I started on nights. Can I give this patient Tylenol and sort of pacing back and forth? I don't know. Can I give them Tylenol? How much would I give them? Mm-hmm. Is it safe to give it to them? Yeah. Um, and sort of that kind of curve is something that you kind of anticipate and you learn, you know, how does Tylenol work and the mechanism of action and dosing and all of these things. But when you're suddenly there and being asked if it's okay to do, um, that was a new challenge that I didn't necessarily anticipate. Um, it is you-
0: amazing, isn't it? How those simple things that you, I, I love the fact that that, that those are your two memories. I mean, to me, that's classic first week of internship, right? Yeah. Maybe even first three weeks of internship. I remember very specifically my very first day learning how to replace um, not all electrolytes, like the key electrolytes, that I was on hemoc, and I remember that my resident took me into this little room. I remember exactly what it looked like, and we sat down, and she taught me how to replace. She started by teaching me how to replace potassium. I knew all the, I knew the pathophys, I knew what happened when you, you know, didn't replace it when you placed too much, you know, all that stuff. But no one had ever taught me exactly how much do you give over what period of time, in what dilution, oral versus P- oral versus IV, all that stuff. So. I I think first week of internship is burned in a lot of our brains.
1: Yes, and um, I'm actually gonna be back on that floor as a senior resident next week, um, and I haven't been there uh, on the gastroenterology you know side of the service since I was an intern, since I was a first oh, wow. month intern. Um, so that should be very exciting and interesting, sort of, as the, to have that um, juxtaposition.
0: That's so great. That sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun too. Yes. So how was – and I'm curious, how was that experience of where there's this whole different learning curve and a whole different sort of depth at which – I don't even say depth. I say it's a whole different perspective at which you're looking at the same content and and decisions. How was that the same or different from your first week as a second-year resident?
1: Um, So I think – it's kind of similar to the transitions that we go through at a lot of steps in our education. So like when you're going from being the senior in high school to being freshman in college and senior in college to graduating um, and, you know, you're a fourth year medical student and you you feel so smart and you're like, I know everything and I know all of medicine and you start intern year and you are like, Oh my God, I don't know anything. (laughs) Um, And you go through intern year and you learn so much so quickly and you know, like I was saying before about how I would perseverate about Tylenol by the end of intern year, I was giving all kinds of medicines with complicating dosing patterns and, you know, um, interactions between the medicines and really facile with a lot of things that I never could have done when I started as an intern. And you feel again, like I know what I'm doing. And then you show back up on July 1st with the new intern, um, and you're the senior, and you're like, oh my god, I don't know what I'm doing.
0: Ah, exactly no, right?
1: <laughs> um, you know,
0: it's so true. But the difference is, is that I, I really do think an in internship. I think you feel like what you're doing an in internship is. Um, replacing electrolytes and treating diarrhea and treating constipation and doing cross, you know, but you don't, I, I don't think that interns realize the massive amount that they're learning in the process of being the doer. And then, right. And then they get to the second year at some point very yes. early in, you realize that you actually learned all of that.
1: Yes. And I feel like it's almost like a slow zoom out from first day of being a medical student where you're just starting to learn the basics of how things go together and biochemistry and histopathology and anatomy and physiology. And you're slowly zooming out more and more until you're an intern and you're like, okay, now I'm going to actually start giving medicine. Then like you said, replacing electrolytes and then Mm -hmm. you get to be a second year and you've zoomed out even farther. And you're like, now I'm thinking about the disease process, the long term Mm -hmm. goals. What are the goals of care sometimes? Um, how am I going to get this child out of the hospital? Or if I'm in the clinic, you know, when do I need to see them again? Or how am I going to intervene or not intervene? Um, and as you become this senior resident, you're also supervising more the interns. So You're not just replacing electrolytes. You're figuring out how to manage things that come along as you're going. You're kind of delegating tasks and saying, okay, you need to replace these electrolytes, but you're not necessarily doing it yourself. And yep. also something I didn't appreciate initially was the challenge of kind of like letting go um, to trust that the person a huge that you're working challenge. with. Yeah. Yeah. And um, trustments,
0: it's big, it's tough.
1: Yeah. So you have to sort of learn to not micromanage and, but also still be supervising and you know, not say too much or That's say right. more when you need to. And it's all kind of a learning curve. And I would say then going from it being a second year resident to a third year resident was like a smoother transition because it's sort of more similar to being a second year resident, but I have more of that experience to build upon and much easier to take a step back. And um, I love actually when I get to work with a second year resident now because it's sort of working together on the sort of you're at the same level of training in some ways, but also um, more advanced in a lot of other ways. Um, you can have a higher level of understanding of the care of the patient um, and be able to sort of implement that in a different way, um, not as focused on the small details, which really have to be when you're starting as an intern.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that this transition to the first year that you are leading a team, so for for me in internal medicine, for you in pediatrics, you know, that's when we're PGY2s. I think that's that's probably the scariest transition. That's the yeah. biggest transition that you make in your in your um, medical training, um, because you realize, wow, it stop the buck stops with me and it really doesn't. It obviously stops with your attending, but, but you really are in charge for the first time. And that's a mm-hmm. very weighty responsibility. Yes. And um, it's things, things also
1: like, um, you know, running codes and I, there's a joke that, uh, <laughs> it's like a running joke with my wife at home, which is that, you know, can you imagine if it's me who walks into the room to save your child's life. And sort of we laugh about it because my wife has known me since I was 15 years old. And she's like, no, I cannot (laughs) imagine that. Um, But you do it and things go well. And um, it's a very interesting sort of transition growing up and uh, coming into that level of competency.
0: Because she knew you as a kid.
1: Yeah, she knew me as a kid, and uh, yeah. we met in high school, and she was supporting me when I was going to be a professional musician, yeah. and uh, I turned out to be a doctor, which is great. But yeah, it's, um, it's sort of like, it's a funny thing where you think about, I mean, I on different stories, I remember explaining to her what was happening on a recent inpatient rotation I had on the oncology, hematology oncology service, and I was explaining how there's me, and then I have two interns and three medical students. And she was astonished that I was in charge of all these other doctors and people. Yeah. Um, and I was also kind of <laughs> surprised to kind of reflect and be like, Oh yeah, I am. And it's going well.
0: Yeah. That's what you do now. Yeah. It's, it's, it is, it becomes so ingrained in who you are as a physician in training. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I think with that, you know, cause it's funny, I wasn't, actually, thinking with quite that perspective, and I think that's a great perspective to to sort of move on from um, were you surprised that you felt pretty prepared or unprepared for certain things that you encountered um in residency like were you were there things you encountered and you said, wow, i i actually knew this, you know, and then you were surprised by it or or vice versa that you were unprepared and you're like oh i thought I, I thought I knew this
1: so I think I was very prepared by my education at Netter in terms of physiology, pathophysiology, anatomy, biochemistry really fundamentals were really strong, and then the initial clerkship and direct patient education was also really strong, but there's something that Changes when you're now the doctor, which I don't think you can ever be prepared for. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Some things were, as I was studying some things as a medical student, I didn't appreciate what would be most clinically pertinent or what would be common or uncommon. And it's all sort of in a basket of things that you need to learn. And I was so surprised, for example, going into residency to learn that. Kawasaki disease is something that I'm going to deal with all the time. And now- It's not the just mix- the
0: slide that you're yeah. looking at in the lecture. Yeah.
1: I mean, I remember, I can picture in my mind's eye, the section in first aid for step one, where Kawasaki disease is. And it's like one line, Kawasaki disease prevalence in you know four years old, predominant Asian distri- population distribution epidemiologically, like medium best Google vasculitis, whatever it said. And I said, oh, this is something I'll never see. (laughs) (laughs) uh, We see it relatively frequently. And now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're seeing the MISC, the multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, Mm -hmm. which is just like House socket disease. Mm. And so I never could have predicted that that would have been the thing. You know, I would have really yeah. focused a lot more on it when I was studying that <laughs> of course, as an ankle student yeah. if I had known. Yeah. Um and I was I'm, I've been struck by that. Um but then other things really that you expect to see, you do see. So like sepsis is sepsis, and we see that relatively frequently. Um, but uh, you know, chronic kidney disease and congestive heart failure and things that you see commonly in older folks and in internal medicine, I don't see. Um, but I still remember how to manage them. From, from medical school.
0: And, and so let's, and I'm curious, let's talk about um, a couple of specific things that come to my mind that I'm just curious about. You, you had problem-based learning as a second year student, right? Mm-hmm. So for people who might be listening and might not know what that is. So that is, um, it's uh, an instructional method where students are put in two small groups with a facilitator. And they work through an unfolding case over a, the course of a week, and yet the students are entirely in charge of their own learning. They are essentially functioning as the clinical team taking care of the patient, who in this, um, in, in this example is, is a case, um, a written case example. Um, and you have to work together to figure out what's going on with the patient, figure out the best course of treatment, um, think about a lot of other um, pieces in terms of their care as well, and minimal with minimal help from your facilitator. Your facilitator is really there just to sort of nudge you and guide you if you're really going off path. Um, but the learning is really in the hands of the student. And um, and I'm curious. I think that. Um, PBL is actually very valued by the students. There's, and, But then, of course, and there's it's a lot of nice literature to support its use. But in terms of how students feel about it, I think there's varying levels of appreciation of its usefulness. So I'm curious of what your perspective was on that.
1: So I think you're spot on about how people have different perceptions of how useful it is in, when it's actually occurring and definitely, I think there's a certain feeling, or there was a certain feeling sometimes of, oh, great, it's PBL. I need to get up early and show up in person on campus, and whatever kind of feelings that is. But in reality, it turns out to be like the most valuable preclinical educational thing that I did. Mm. Um, it turns out to really well reflect the way that you approach a case, form a differential diagnosis consider different treatment options or interventions, work up. And in real life, before you see a case, when you just have the chief complaint, or you have a general idea of the, you know, triage note in the ED or something like that, you do the same thing. And in fact, uh, so right now, I'm currently sitting in the clinic here at Connecticut Children's. And about two hours ago, we had a patient who came in, not on my schedule, but on a one of the intern schedule. Who the chief complaint was uh, near syncope, and the school nurse took vitals and the, thought the child was bradycardic in a fifteen year old. So we sat there and we did basically a PBL in fifteen minutes. We talked through differential mm-hmm. diagnosis, what you need to ask, what you need to look for. If you find this, then what's your follow up study? If you find that, then what's your intervention? What are the things that are going to make you make you call an ambulance right now? What are the things that are going to make you say, oh, we'll follow up, you know, routinely. And it really mirrors just what we do in PBL. Yeah. Except it's accelerated and it's, you know, just before seeing the patient. Mm-hmm. But learning sort of the slow, methodical way to approach a case, it just is so valuable. It turns out to be something that I actually do every day.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, and I do think that is hard to communicate to students. You know when they're actually going through it, um, that, that this is actually real. You know this is what we do. It's I real. think I personally think one of the um, one of the great things that PBL does is that it teaches you because you are going to be in settings and teams where you'll be making decisions, and it teaches you to question and have and you have to have the confidence and know how to um, challenge your colleagues when it's important for the patient in a respectful way. Um, but that's really important. Sometimes you call a consult and the consultant comes, they're the expert. But you might be concerned about what they recommend. I'm not, I'm not really sure I agree with that. Let's talk that through, right? And I think that's a great place to, to start to learn that skill as well.
1: I agree completely, and especially in terms of the formation of the differential diagnosis, um, which is such a key skill, and of course something that I'm still working on, and we all continually work on. And it's kind of the cornerstone of how you evaluate a patient.
0: Yeah, and um, it's and it's tough. I mean, I, I always call yes. it the black box of year three. Is differential diagnosis? You know, um, yeah. if if you can start to get that, then you're you're cruising.
1: Yeah. And at a certain point you, and I don't know exactly how it happens, but you come to a place where I don't have to write out whatever acronym we used in PBL. I think we used the Vindicates acronym, um, where, you know, you really go through methodologically, like, or methodically, I mean, um, each category and considering etiologies of the complaint within each category, you can kind of sort of streamline it a little bit. And you know, for this Mm -hmm. complaint, you're looking at these Chief etiologies, or you know, you have a much broader basket of illness scripts um, to sort of reference. And I guess since I sort of brought it up, the other thing that I remember was illness scripts and how much I didn't like writing out these illness <laughs> scripts, which were these things that we had to fill out, which was like, here's the chief complaint, here's the story the patient is telling me, and here are my core. Uh, like my core differential diagnosis yeah. based on this, and this was
0: in and this was in clinical arts and sciences.
1: Yes. Yeah. And how? And I really didn't like doing it. And in retrospect, it's like so valuable, and it's so really valuable. what we actually do. And yeah. it comes from experience. Now that I've seen like I don't know what thousands of patients that I more kind of um, it's more organic how you hear the illness script and then can kind of place it in your.
0: Of course, because that's what happens with expertise. You start to have pattern recognition. Um, That makes complete sense.
1: But doing the actual like tedium of the illness script, Mm -hmm. which at the, at the time felt like tedium, Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) it was
1: so valuable in retrospect, so valuable. And it's what we actually do. Um, And I think like, if there's a way to better communicate to Medical students, that this is true and a fact about the way that you're learning how to think, yeah, um, would be so valuable. And I don't. Besides, just sort of being like, I promise. I don't know how you do that, but that would be that's something <laughs> I wish I appreciated more.
0: Maybe coming, maybe coming from you. It's that's probably the most you probably have the most credibility saying something like that. <laughs> um, I think it's. I think sometimes. Um, You know, creating that relevance is just so important, both to the content of what we're teaching and and the methods that we're using to teach. That is such a good example of the method that you're using to teach. You're teaching you're you're teaching them systematic clinical reasoning, right? Through um, through creating, you know, several illness scripts, Um, but being able to provide that relevance is really motivating and really useful for learners. And and I know there's a lot of effort that goes into creating it, but there are some things, and it's different for also each learner, that it it doesn't hit you until you actually experience it, mm-hmm. right? And you say, wow, I, now I get it. Now I see why that was so important.
1: Yes, completely.
0: So looking back at medical school, what were one or two of your most valuable learning experiences as a student? And, and why was that?
1: Um, So, we already talked a little bit about the PBL, uh, problem based learning, and the illness scripts, which I think were very valuable, definitely more so than I might have appreciated at the time. The other thing that I think was a little bit maybe unique to Netter, but just so valuable was the anatomy lab. Um, I think, sort of in the midst of the pandemic currently, and hearing from the new interns and now second years, how their experience was impacted by. The pandemic and how the classes below them had more virtual anatomy i really appreciate how the space that we had was well lit well ventilated bright and really allowed us to learn anatomy and at the same time physiology in a space that was safe and more I think in the anatomy lab, it can be very sad, and it can be a very strange place to be, to do dissection of a person. Um, But it turns out to be so critically important to understanding how processes work and how things fit together. I think one easy to understand example is I recently saw a teenager with heel pain, and it was probably... um, like inflammation at the insertion point at the calcaneus at the back of his heel and referencing my experience in AI lab, seeing these things, seeing how they hmm. attach was really important. Hmm. Um, and I think at the time it was an enjoyable experience because it wasn't scary and dark and smelly and yep. really kind of a different kind of setting. But at the same time, I think it was easy then to be like, ah, can we do this on the computer like why, why are we doing this kind of barbaric thing? Yeah, but I really, from that experience, I'm a strong advocate for that style of anatomy learning. I think it really teaches you to respect people and their bodies and You know, how things work and fit together in a way that you otherwise can't. And, and it was also the first time I saw real organic pathology um and in a way uh-huh. that made sense, seeing things like some of the donors had cancer in their bodies yeah. or had had previous um, procedures or surgeries done or had foreign things in their bodies like artificial hips or a pacemaker. And I think you can't really understand what happens to people or what they go through or sort of what is occurring internally in a way that's that powerful other than actually going through that experience.
0: Yeah. And and of course, I'm sure if we talk to 10 different 10 different residents they'd have you know and ask them what was what was one thing that was the most valuable learning experience in medical so they'd probably be 10 different things but um, yes I I can connect with both of those
1: and I'll yeah and I'll never forget I don't know if this is a little bit morbid but it's, it's not something medical that I learned necessarily but I'll never forget the donor that we had in my group had this kind of like pale baby um baby powder, pink nail polish. And like, I'll never forget that on never for- and like doing the dissection of the hand and being like, this is a person who went to the nail salon mm. and like had her nails done. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I carry with me. Like every time I take care of patients also. Wow.
0: I often think that I would actually love to go back to medical school and do it all over again without having to take the tests. <laughs> and worry about the grades, but I would love to go back with the knowledge that I have now and start all over again. And I think, I think I would love it, every bit of it, right? From learning clinical skills systematically again, and all the clinical skills, you know, the ones that sometimes we don't, we don't remember, you know, off the top of our heads and, and, and do anatomy again and learn the basic science from the beginning again. I don't know if you think that because you're still so close to it, but now having not been as close to it, I think that often.
1: I I totally agree. And I think part of the problem is um, the tests themselves also, because I mean, I recognize that you have to have the board exams and they serve an important function, but that was such a focus for a lot of people. I mean, I think not myself as much, um, knowing that I was going to do pediatrics and the board score wasn't as... Um critically important as like a cutoff in applications. But at that time, the step one was not pass-fail like it is now. And there was a general sense in the preclinical years of like, well, if yeah. this isn't going to prepare me for this exam, then like, what is the point?
0: Yeah. and, and that's I think a, that, Sorry. I mean, to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, it's okay. I was just going to say, and I think
1: that's kind of damaging to being able to really take in the breadth and the significance of some of the things you're learning. I mean, I talked about Kawasaki disease before, like, if you never learned about it, it wouldn't have affected your board score exam,
0: yeah. right?
1: And yeah. it turns out to be very important for what I actually do in daily practice. So like, for example, I would love to go back and do histopathology again and really now understand like what I'm looking at and how it works and yeah. how it
0: fits into the And picture. just pay attention to learning. I mean, if, if I were to say that this is a topic that is so hotly debated at the local, regional, national level in medical education, um, that would be a massive understatement. <laughs> so I mean, we could speak for easily a whole. We could do a whole other podcast and we can chat about that. But I I agree, and I think that's such an important piece as you look back, right, and you think, oh, if if only, and and yet that is sort of that's sort of how I see residency. When I got to residency, I remember feeling liberated to just learn
1: yes, and just be
0: a doctor. I think um, that's very –
1: I think that's really true. Um, yeah. And I think like – well, also like I'm curious what you think too. Do you think that now that step one is pass-fail that there's a little bit less of an obsession about that?
0: That, that was the idea. I mean this is so complicated. But that, that, um, that was the idea. Um, And it's been a a long um, push for a lot of educators uh, up up to the national level to make step one pass fail for all the reasons that you mentioned. Um, And yet, it's a very complex thing to shift an entire system that has been driven so hard by assessment. Um, and, And so there are unintended consequences. And now, now the unintended consequences are things like well, if you have residency programs that are getting hundreds or thousands of applications and they used to use the step one score as one of the cutoffs, now how are they going to do that? And does mm-hmm. that then make the step two score overly important? And so there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity to it, but in, in general, the, the, the ethos behind it, yes, I, I agree that we must ensure that our learners are competent because we are allowing them uh, to leave and be in charge of people's lives. Um, But how we determine that competence um, and whether it needs to be in the way that it was done before, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. So, what are you thinking about now that you're only months away from being an attending? Like what, what are your teaching goals as a faculty member?
1: So before I sort of answer that directly, I think what I'm feeling is that this is going to be just like every other transition. Like I mentioned, where I'm (laughs) probably going to, you know, like right now I feel pretty good. Like I feel like I know what I'm doing in a lot of settings. And I think as soon as I'm out without sort of that direct supervisory level, I'm gonna be back to being like, Oh my god, I don't know anything.
0: Which which by the way, I hate to tell you it's true.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's what I hear. <laughs> so I'm preparing myself, you know, mentally and emotionally for that. You will know. You
0: will know quite a lot. And one of the things that you'll know really well is fi- how to find the answers yes. to things that you don't know and apply those answers to care yes. for your patients. And that's I think I am so now,
1: critical. I think I am now very good at knowing what I don't know, which is, turns out to be one of the most important important things. And then knowing how to find out.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um,
1: So I think that's one thing that I'll definitely impress upon, you know, learners as I, you know, go into attending hood, is just sort of the learning how to assess when you do and do not understand something and being able to figure out what is the answer um, and how do you move from identifying an answer to say like the etiology of a problem and then moving beyond that to okay now what what am I going to do about that problem yeah and I think that's probably one of the greatest focuses that you can or that I will try to impart on especially early learners um, because it turns out to be sort of the basis of how we do anything
0: yeah absolutely Zach, and thank you so much for sharing your perspectives with us today. This was really, um, it was a really fun conversation. It's so great to see you again and talk to you again. Um, And I wish you all the best as you go on to the next step in your journey.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. And it was really nice to have opportunity to reflect on all of these things.
0: Many thanks to Dr. Zachary Steinman for joining me today. This was the Told Me podcast to learn and develop for medical educators from the Netter School of Medicine Faculty Development Program at Quinnipiac University. I'm Lisa Coplett. Thanks for listening, and join me for our next podcast. I would also like to thank the people who contributed to today's show, Katie Lyons, our producer, and David DeRoche, our program director. For more information on other faculty development opportunities at Netter, Email katie.lyons at qu.edu. For more information on all of Quinnipiac's podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at qupodcasts.